Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. I've been waiting to do this interview for a couple of months, right? Uh, joining me from uh, Massachusetts is, uh, I think it's Andy Biggio. Is it Andy or Andrew? What do you go by? Andy's fine. All right. Formerly an infantryman in the United States Marine Corps, rose to the rank of sergeant, uh, currently part of the Boston Police Force, a veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation Enduring Freedom uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, he is president of New England's Wounded Veterans Incorporated, a nonprofit which supports wounded veterans. And he's got a master's degree in Homeland Security for, from Northeastern University. Yeah, um, all of that in one dude. So, uh, Andy, first of all, uh, welcome to Albany Radio. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. The um, first of all, uh, let's talk about let's talk about you. So, I mean, come on, we're Marines, so you got to pass a sniff test before we listen to you. Um, so, let's talk about you. Born and raised where? Born and raised right here in Boston. Um, I was born in uh, 1987 at Beth Israel Hospital. Raised in the city of Everett, Mass, for a little bit. Um, and now reside in the town of Winthrop. Why do I know Winthrop? Winthrop's famous, right? For what? Well, probably Mike Ruzioni and the... Um, there you go. Yeah, the... Uh, Miracle on Ice right there, the Russia. captain. Olympics, yeah. Yeah. The um, <clears throat> So how does the... Uh, how does the... Uh, how does the Marine Corps get on your radar? You know, I, I, I don't – I remember when it became the Marine Corps. You know, since I was a little kid, I, I wanted to join the, the military. You know, I just found – I was just very moved by veterans in general. You know, I remember being a young kid and just seeing, like, the old-timers collecting money for poppies outside the local grocery stores. And I just – something about them I was mesmerized by. I wanted to just keep going up and putting money in their little cans, their little DAV cans or American Legion cans and – and I remember like flipping through a history book sometime in sixth grade, and I said, "Yeah, that Marine Corps uniform is pretty awesome. I want to wear that one, you know." And then uh, let's fast forward to you know about eighth grade, and the planes are flying into the fucking Twin Towers, and um, I said, "You know what? Uh, let's go. Let's speed this up." I thought I was gonna miss miss the whole war, and um, nope. The both both Iraq and Afghanistan were waiting for me after I get out of high school. So, you know. The guy who wrote your forward uh, said something, told me something similar when I interviewed uh, Woody Williams, uh, Medal of Honor recipient, United States Marine Corps from Iwo Jima, mm-hmm. and uh, he said he lived, he's living up in West Virginia, and he said when I saw that dress blue uniform, I said who's that, and he said you know if I have a uniform like that, I could get a girl, <laughs> and <laughs> and and the rest, as they say. Is history. So you're following. And I told him, I said, you know, you you're not the last guy who's ever said that. He said, Oh, I know. Um, before we go any further, I mean, you have obviously service uh, in your family. Who's Andy Biggio? Who's the picture I'm looking at? Uh, who was killed on September 17th, 1944? Sure, Andy was my grandfather's brother. I'm named after him. My dad's named after him, and it was a huge blow to my great-grandmother when her oldest and first boy was killed in action in Italy fighting with the 34th Division. And it's something that, you know, as you know, families are never the same after they lose a loved one in combat. These Gold Star families are never the same. Um, I don't think – I think my grandfather told me that his mother never put up the Christmas tree again after that. It just didn't feel you know like she was just destroyed didn't feel right celebrating christmas without her firstborn son anymore 
And, um, you know, when I got back from Iraq and Afghanistan, I started to look more into this kid who died, this kid with my name who died in war, who didn't, wasn't as lucky as me to come home. And I started to read through his letters that he wrote home as a little angry infantryman fighting in the hills of Italy. And reading these letters, I'm like, oh, my God, there's no difference today than today's grunts are bitching about him moaning and complaining about everything. Except, you know, obviously he had it pretty bad um, and to the point where, you know, his last letter home, he was asking his mother for a gold cross for her to mail her a gold cross, mail him a gold cross so he could wear it on his neck. Because obviously he felt like something was going to happen. And sure enough, his last letter was September 12th and he was killed on the 17th. Wow. I just got back from speaking uh, in Pearl Harbor. It's interesting you say that, you know, what you just said. My mother's, all right, my grandmother, uh, my mom's mom, uh, her brother was killed um, in the Pacific. Uh, Mm -hmm. He was the gunnery officer on the USS Halligan. And um, he, uh, so he's the third in command on the ship. Um, Young guy, I think he's 25 years old. And they fight through all the major fights in the Pacific, this ship does. And they hit a mine off the uh, western coast of Okinawa as they're escorting minesweepers. The mine detonates adjacent to the forward magazine. The front third of the ship is blown off. 19 of 21 officers were killed. 150 of, I think, 280 of the crew were killed. And they never recovered a body. You know, in, in, in World War II, um, you know, you got a telegram. That's it. That was a casualty notification. Right. You know, he, was, nope. he is missing and presumed dead. Never. And so when I was at Pearl Harbor um, speaking, I had, for the first time, this is the third time I've been there, but I haven't had time to go do any sightseeing. So uh, Tuesday morning I had a little time. So I got up early, and the first place I thought I should go, was to pay my respects to him at the punch bowl where his name is engraved in the marble out there. And sure. so I got, I called up this cab driver I know who drives me around. He took me out to the punch bowl, you know, and, and, and as you write in your forward, you know, these young men, right. And women, but majority were men in, in, in the very early part of their young lives, went off to fight, not for nine months, not for a year, till the mm-hmm. war ended. That's right. when they were coming home. And cool. I, I, I remember standing down by the, the, the mouth of Pearl Harbor thinking, I wonder if he sailed out of this on the Halligan. And when nothing yeah. with the big blue Pacific in front of you know, him, wondering if he'd ever see American territory because Hawaii was in a state. And this was the last part of the United States he'd ever seen in his life. And, uh, you know, and... and, and I mean, what that, and my grandmother used to say, my mother was devastated, her only son, and she said, and worst of all, we didn't even have a body to bury, we couldn't go put flowers on a grave, none of that. And so very, yeah. very interesting parallel experience um, here just yeah. within the last 48 hours uh, with me yeah. going to, to see him. So interesting. So so you grow up with his 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 name. You grow up with those pictures in the house and all that. So this is in front of you. Yeah, it's a it's a reminder, right? So I'm living in the same house he left. I'm, I'm walking off the same porch that he walked off. And when and I was thinking that you know, like the last the last Andrew Biggio to leave this house to hug his dad on the same front porch didn't come home from war. You know, could this be me too? And it wasn't. And then I felt like I owed him something when I came home. What did you, how have you tried to repay that debt? Because you got to come home, he did not. Um, this is, yeah. How have you tried yeah, to? Yeah, so I mean, his, it's his, what, the first letter I pulled out of that shoebox, the letters he wrote home before he was killed, is how much he enjoyed the M1 Grand rifle, the M1 service rifle that was the standard rifle of that time, of that era. Um, it was issued to pretty much every infantryman. Uh, during World War II. So he's talking about how much he enjoys this rifle. What do I do? I have to go out and buy one. I want to hold what he held, feel what he felt. 
and that satisfactory feeling only lasted an hour, you know, after playing G.I. Joe in my house. I'm like, no, now what? So I said, oh, you know what? My neighbor fought in the Battle of Okinawa, and he's a Marine, and he's not doing go, but I don't care. I'm going to just literally just go up to his house and see what he says. So I knocked on his door. His name was Joe Drago, 6th Marine Division, Battle of Okinawa, first wave. That's all I knew. That's all we ever talked about in passing at, at Veterans Events Memorial Day. But when I put when I knocked on the door and put this rifle into his hands, I mean, he went from being a frail old man to this warrior again. He lifts the rifle up, puts it in his shoulder. He's aiming it. He's smiling from ear to ear. He's swinging it around. I, have to, I literally have to duck out of the way because it almost <laughs> comes right by my face. And he starts talking about the Battle of Okinawa for two and a half hours, Mike. And I'm sitting there. Like by the time he was done talking, he couldn't even lift his head up. He was so exhausted. That's how much this the the rifle was really acting like a, a time portal. And I said, you know, sign my rifle. I always want to remember this moment, please. And you know, at first he didn't want to because he didn't want to mark up such a beautiful weapon as he called it. And then. He signed his name to the wooden stock, and when I left his house and I looked down at that name, I said, I got to find as many veterans, World War II veterans as possible, and have, get their story and have them add their name to this. So that's how the book happened. That's how the book happened, right? Wow. So now going back to Andy, here I am, like 30, 40 signatures on the rifle, and I said, wait a minute, why am I not getting trying to find survivors from that hill in Italy that Andy was killed on? Holy shit. Mm. yep and um, you know now I start reading after action reports the 34th division in Italy B company you know fighting in this hill trying to break the gothic line in Italy this casualty 30 dead silver star recipients citations you know just unbelievable fighting in, in Italy that's often overlooked because the D-Day invasions already happened right. in France and Italy just kind of got forgotten about. And these divisions, these kids are left in Italy fighting in the hills and they know it. They know other progress is being made elsewhere in the world, but they're there to hold 30 German divisions in Italy so they don't reinforce the Normandy front or the uh, eastern front with the Russians. Right. So, Now you read about the fighting. Uh, first of all, German army, pretty formidable. Fighting in the mountains, pretty difficult, right? And this, and 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 the slog that that was, you know, up the Italian boot, and uh, yeah, that was not for the faint of heart. And uh, let me just read for everybody. I I don't even know. Is this the dedication of the book that you write to the eighteen and nineteen year olds? It doesn't have anything over it. Um, it's 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 not the forward. What is that? Is this the dedication? It's it's a dedication to people like my uncle, all right, the 19-year-old kids who, whose names we'll never know, who we probably pass every day on a monument or a street corner, you know, that we've never met. They never got to have family. They never got to have kids. They probably never got laid. They pro- you know, they didn't get to do anything. They were 18 and 19 years old, fresh out of high school, and we send them into the meat grinder. Right. And today's kids and me and you included because there's just so many of these young kids that are still buried over in Europe or in the Pacific Islands or at the Punch Bowl, as you as you say, and we'll never know them. We'll never know their names. We'll never know what they did, and life goes on, and my book is dedicated to them. Well, you know what I thought? I'm standing there, and I'm trying to take a picture of his name, right? And I'm thinking... This is all of him that's left, as you said. He didn't have any kids, right? I, I, when I look for information about him, there's a picture that I have up on my wall that I've had for years. Um, after my grandmother passed away, and there was a bunch of her stuff, and his people, they were saying, well, if take what you want. And I saw the picture of him, and I said, I want that. And, um, and so I see him every day. And I and I and I stood there, and it had. It's weird having this, right? Having this doing this interview with you, like within forty-eight hours, because that was that was my thought. Nothing of him exists on this planet. He he didn't have. He didn't live a long enough life after college, you know, um, 
to do anything that anyone you know here in the United States would remember him for. All he did yeah. was give his only life for his country, and 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 again, and and be lost at sea, never to even, never to even come home. So let me re- I'll, I'll read this dedication to the eighteen and nineteen year old kids who gave their lives in the Second World War, whose names we may never know. Still buried in Europe and in the Pacific Islands where they fell, they are seldom visited, as their counterparts who survived also faded through time. Even as their family members and friends disappear with the ages and the cemeteries seem empty, their legacy will last forever. And, you know, I, I mean, to me, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, I marvel at today when you when you see all the different rhetoric about the United States, you know, I just, I just say, I think of being raised a Catholic. I think of Christ's words on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Get in a boat, get on a plane, and go travel around the world and see how fortunate you are to be born in this country mm-hmm. that has had men like, you know, Andy Biggio, men like Hank Metzger, who went off and gave the only life they'll ever have so that you could come here, to be free, be what you want to be. And then sit down and let's have a serious conversation about what this country is, you know, or what this country is not. But I don't know. It seems sometimes it seems a little um, uncomfortable for me, uh, the lack of gratitude that you see, and even the lack of historical perspective of how lucky they are. Because I mean, you and I both been to Iraq and Afghanistan. What years were you in Iraq? What um, I was in Iraq, two thousand eight, uh, really kind of like the tail end of all the craziness. Right. Um, and then I was in Afghanistan in twenty eleven, which was probably. The year you you might want to be there if you want to see some shit. Where, but, where uh, and where were you? Who were you with? Um, so my first tour was with Second Battalion, Twenty Fifth Marines, out of New York City. Right. Um, so I got to deploy with all these NYPD, FDNY, nine eleven survivors. Like wow. it was just unbelievable being with these New Yorkers. You know. Right, right. Um, I was a college student at the time, so I deployed with this reserve unit. Um, and. It, that was just uh, that was amazing to be with them over there, just those guys and who they are, and just it was cool. Um, and then in 2011, I was with First Battalion, 25th Marines out of New England, and we were mobilized under the First Mar Div and attached to uh, Regimental Combat Team Eight in uh, both Helmand and Nimra's province. Yeah, I was I was south of you then. I was with RCT One down at the, down in the Marge vicinity. Uh, mm-hmm. We were there in 2010, 2011. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. So in, yeah. in 2010, you guys were the real shock troops, you know. Um, and then, uh, fortunately enough for me, I mean, I lived outside the wire for, you right. know, whatever, six months uh, at an Afghan highway patrol station. But my good friend who I was in Iraq with ended up losing both his legs in Marja, uh, Greg Karen. Uh, and that was in November of 2011. They were going into a house over there. He was in Charlie Company. I was in Bravo Company. And I guess the IED was inside of the inside of a wall in the house. So when he when they sent two dogs in, the dogs didn't pick up the scent. When he walked in, took both his legs off. Yeah, they got good at that. They knew that we would sweep doorways and things like that. They'd put them in pretty complex, you know, IEDs, designed, you know, put in places where they thought we would look. The um, let let me go back a little bit because it's uh, because it's just the spontaneous nature of this interview. Um, I want to go back to you're in high school, and and why did you pick the Marine Corps? Because of the uniform? Um, well, I just because... I knew the Marines just sounded badass. You know, the uniforms were cool. <laughs> uh, you know, and then of course, you know. <laughs> Later on, you know, you realize what I could have been. I could have been hanging out of a, you know, Black Hawk with a machine gun in the army with a freaking ASVAB score of zero, you know. But, um, you know, the Marine Corps just seemed hardcore. It seemed badass. I, I knew I wasn't a Special Forces Navy SEAL guy, and I knew I wasn't just a dumpy regular, regular guy. I wanted something in the middle, and I felt like the Marine Corps was, was that. That was it, you know. Got it. Got it. So you enlist what year? Oh six. So I got to Paris Island six 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 oh six. Holy I, I shit! Yep, I graduated May thirtieth of oh six from Malden Catholic High School. May thirtieth, and oh. I was at Paris Island seven days later. 
So I was there six six oh six, and it was hell. That's for sure. <laughs> that is awesome and so uh how do you become an infantryman did you want to become a grunt did you go and open contract no no, i just thought marine was a marine yippee skippy you know and i i had been signed up originally for embarkation logistics right so uh yeah i had no idea what that was i was doing that and my buddy goes you're signing up for what this kid was already a Marine. He was like a year ahead of me in high school. I'm like, oh, embarkation, logistics. He goes, no. You get your, I'm coming with you to the recruit. You tell him it's infantry and nothing. I go, what? He's like, yeah. You tell him you want infantry and nothing. And I said, okay. So I went down there and I said, okay, I want infantry. And the guy was like, okay, you're a fucking 0311 then. You know? So. <laughs> That's, you know, that's all. That's all. You know, I love the stories about how guys get in the Marine Corps and then how they become what they become. Yeah, my friend told me. You know, I, I had a friend tell me like he's going around his town in New Hampshire and he's 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 not doing anything, and he sees this guy and goes, what, hey, "So what's going on?" He goes, "I'm joining. I joined the Marine Corps." And he's like, "What?" He goes, "Yeah, <clears throat> I'm I'm going. You know, in two weeks." And he said this guy was kind of a frumpy kind of – and he goes like, that guy's joined the Marine Corps? If he joins the Marine Corps, like <clears throat> if he joins the Marine Corps, he goes, I sure as hell can do that. Mm. And so he goes down the recruiter and he says, I want to join the Marine Corps, but I want to go before that guy does. And the guy says, we can't send you that fast. So he goes – he ships two weeks after the the the, the, the fat guy and – the day before he ships, he sees the fat guy back in town. He says, what happened? He goes, oh, they threw me out. <laughs> <laughs> and then the rest is history, and he finds up retiring out of the Marine Corps. Um, so let me ask you this. Are, are you still in the Marine Corps? Are you out, out? Um, tell us I about your – out. I did my um, six by two years, right, the eight-year contract in Marine Corps Reserve. Right. Um requested i got that i came out i got into uh got my master's degree went into law enforcement and that's what i always wanted to do since i was a kid i wanted to be a marine and a cop that was it and i stood no matter what my education level was or what was going on i just or how much money was involved in either of those occupations it's just what i wanted to do and i i've kept that goal since i was a kid and I, i do pat myself on the back with um I don't know. If I had seen the way law enforcement was going to be heading while I was in the Marines, who knows? Maybe I still would have stayed in or, or went full-blown active duty. Or Well, let's, let's or talk about that. So are, what do you, So you're a cop now. Um, yep. What do you do? Are you a patrolman? Are you in a leadership right. position? What do you do? Yeah, I'm in uh, three different things. I, I am a regular – I still have my regular patrol schedule. Right. Um, I also – I do plain clothes work and run informants to buy heroin and fentanyl for me. Mm-hmm. And then I am also on the regional SWAT team, uh, which is about five cities combined. Right. Um, and yeah, so that's – so I am – I'm busy with the police force. You know? What's but, it like? So – we see it on TV, and uh, it doesn't look like uh, it's a very good time in this country to be a police officer and involved in no. policing or law enforcement. What's it like? Yeah, I, it's 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 nervous. It's 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 very nerve wracking. You want to feel confident on every call you go on, whether it's just a medical call for an old lady that's fell down, or if for it's for a um, a B and E, a breaking and entering in progress. You. You want to be comfortable to be able to stop who you want to stop, talk to who you want to talk, and investigate what you want to investigate. And I think a lot of cops in this country are, are do not want to do proactive police work anymore. They want to just simply answer their radios, and they barely want to do that. And I don't blame them. You know, I don't blame them. This, we're, we are a job now that's not allowed to make any mistakes. And I don't mean mistakes like killing somebody or shooting someone. I mean the simple of just detaining you momentarily while I find out if you're the guy I'm looking for or not has become frowned upon. I mean, how can you be a police officer if you can't investigate who you want to investigate, look who, into who you want to look into? Um, and I feel like we are really just – we're killing the occupation of policing to be one of these joke police forces like there are in some other third world countries or you know other places. But you know we just can't have the best of both worlds. Sure, like – Okay, England 
their police, their regular police do not carry guns. Well, they don't have the Second Amendment and they don't have a country loaded with firearms. You know, we do. So you can't have the best of, the best of both worlds, you know, and um, it's just, uh, you know, the old timers keep telling me, oh, it'll turn around. I've been on the job 35 years. I always see this go back and forth. I, I just don't. I think they're in denial because I think they may have seen it going back and forth, but now I'm in the age of the camera phone, social media, which will keep the hate for police fresh. As long as you show one clip of some sheriff in Kentucky slapping someone, well, we, we here in Boston are going to feel it, right. you know? Right. right. No, and, you're, and you'll always be able to find that because everybody pulls – as soon as people see a cop, what's the first thing I do now? Pull out your cell phone. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, so well, let me. Go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I let me just tell you. I, uh, you know, I just uh, stay safe, man, and and good luck, and 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 you know, I mean, most of the country, right, is is a hundred percent behind, you know, our police officers, and our law enforcement people, and uh, just like us in the Marine Corps, we had you know we had guys who didn't do the right thing, law enforcement has people like that too right oh, yeah. doesn't doesn't mean that 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 99 of them aren't doing the right thing and uh and and a lot of people have to learn a hard lesson which is the whole defund the police movement like yeah that's probably a bad idea but it's it's like they have the nation stage right now and it's almost like that thing has to run its course and it's got to get bad so that law and order candidates run kind of the discussion that's going on in new york city right now um, hey, we we need New York City to be safe. Number one, it's got to be safe, and mm-hmm. and and the only way you're going to get there is these idiots are going to have power, and they're going to do things like defund the police. Crime's going to go up, and then other candidates are going to run, and people will vote for them, and hopefully we'll see the pendulum switch back, you know, move back to the center. But as you said, I don't ever see a day when when police officers aren't going to be photographed in this country again, no matter what they're doing. And uh, not that that's necessarily a bad thing, but it's kind of the the underlying attitude that when we see you, we don't see you as a friend and somebody who's going to help. We see you as somebody who we have to watch, and that's that's problematic. That's problematic. Let's go back to the book. The um, so you, so you have this first experience, and I have to tell you, I bought an M1 Grand because I'm a history guy. And uh, growing up, kind of like you, I watched World War II stuff. And so when I got old enough, uh, as an officer in the Marine Corps, I bought a grant. And then I, a friend of mine had a wood refinishing place. And I took it up there and I refinished it. And uh, I took it over to my uncle's house. And my uncle served in the Army of Occupation of Germany. And he saw this thing. And, you know, he hadn't handled one since the 50s. And he grabbed it, and he tried to do the manual of arms. And for those of you who don't know, um, (laughs) (laughs) Andy's laughing, right? Yep. The manual of arms with the M1 is no joke, man. You you had to take – you had to – well, you want to describe how they used to blow back? I'll call it the charging handle of the uh, M1 Grand. But this thing is like part karate chop. And to blow this bolt to the back. You want to describe to people how they do it? Yeah. So, you know, um, depending on if he's going, you know, going left shoulder, uh, right shoulder, or, you know, port arms, you know, you're basically lifting it up with your right hand, and then you're slapping the buttstock. You're making the noise. You're hitting it. You're cracking it. The um, and then when you open the bolt, right? To get you know, it's, imagine your weapons being oh, inspected. You're, you're right? talking manual arms inspection, right? Right, right. Okay, yep. All right, yeah, yeah, yep. You mm-hmm. so you're you're at port arms, and with your left hand, right, your upper hand that's on the upper end of the stock. You, when you when the inspecting officer gets in front of you, and you have to you know give give him a safe weapon, right? It's this like karate chop thing and my poor uncle he tries to do it i swear to god he almost breaks his hand right because mm. it's just it's not easy 
and he's not 21 anymore, right? Right. And he and he goes, oh God, damn it! He goes, <laughs> I used to be able to do this, and I'm sure you heard this about. I used to be able to do this, and right. he said, hold on, let me try it again. And my aunt said, Frank, <laughs> and I said, come on, you've got to be able to do that. That's your rifle. Mm-hmm. And he and he looks at me and goes, I know. <laughs> and then, but you could, and that's to me the fascinating thing about what you did. Did you? You must have realized the transformative power of that rifle, and it essentially is a triggering mechanism for all these experiences. Um, and it was for that the one time I did that with my my uncle. Um, it was this transformative experience that triggered all these memories, and and him talking about cleaning it, and you know where he was with it, and that's essentially. What you did was this rifle triggers all these memories, all these stories from these veterans. Yeah. Every one of them I put the hands on, they all had a memory, whether it was just in basic training or being used in the war and killing the enemy. Talk to me about, okay, so you do it the first time, and then um, this is just a hobby. When does the idea for the book pop into your head? I must have been I must have been 40 signatures deep, 30 signatures deep when I realized that I was just getting signatures and I said, "Whoa, I should just be recording their stories too." Like, you know, cuz you know how it is, like we're taught, we come from a breed where, you know, if you go on camera and talk about war, then you're just some hardo who wants attention, you know. So I never wanted to stick a camera in their face or record them. I just wanted to meet them and get their signature. Then I realized I was leaving Clarence Cormier's house one day. He was with the 106th Division. He was captured at the Battle of the Bulge. And his daughter said to me, I've never heard Dad say any of that. And that's when it kind of hit me like, are they really opening up to me because I'm a Marine and I saw combat? Are they opening up to me because the rifle acted as a microphone? But I am not doing any service to them just getting a signature and walking off. I should be collecting their stories. And that's where it began. I had to go in reverse now. So I went back to the 30 guys, you know, interviewed them. And then, you know, I went and collected over 200 names on the rifle and I chose 19 of the best stories for the book. Wow. And it, and it becomes, I would imagine, because I interview people, and, you know, you go in and you really don't know what's going to happen, right? As you, as you said, you know, you you know this about them. And then all of a sudden, this thing turn takes a turn and turns into something else. G- give me a few of the crazy things. When I say crazy, I mean, you know, a lot of, the, a lot of times you're interviewing somebody and you're expecting to do an interview with a guy who served on and fought on Iwo Jima, and then all of a sudden he takes you to a place where you didn't even know was there, and a story that he doesn't really talk about because he feels su- such comfort and safety with somebody who he believes is part of his tribe. Um, so, Andy, give us a few stories like that that surprised even you, and, and this thing and. This magical rifle you have is 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 creates this incredible experience. Give me a couple of things that, that that shocked you that people will find in the book. You know, I think what shocked me was the reality they they brought to me. You know, they really woke me up that hey, this World War II wasn't all victory parades, milkshakes, and and swing dancing. You know, um, here's the brutal truth of it. Here's what it took to one win a war, and you know, here's what you as soldiers don't get to do, or Marines don't get to do today, in order to win wars. And you know, I think they really opened me up to, you know, I hope no one takes this the wrong way, but the greatest generation wasn't so great, right? And that's and that's in Joe Drago's words. You know, cutting the teeth out of the Japanese heads, putting their heads on the front of Jeeps, driving around with them. You know, they thought us urinating on dead Taliban in 2010 or 2011 was a joke compared to what they used to do to the enemy in the Pacific. Um, and I think that's what helped me realize that, like, we don't always have to live in the shadows of the World War II veterans. 
they are undoubtedly gods to us, but they really taught me that there was no difference between the soldiers who rose their hand today to to, to defend their country after 9-11 compared to those who defended it after Pearl Harbor. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a bit problematic uh, when everybody's got a cell phone, uh, when there is an internet, and people begin to post, you know, their pictures on the internet. It tends to take the tarnish or add a little tarnish to the image, you know, that gets carefully crafted of the sailor kissing a girl, right, of the the wine and the dancing in Paris, blah, 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 blah. It ain't that way when you hear about being captured in the Battle of the Bulge or the Battle of the Hurricane Forest, you know, or, you know, the slug up. Right? Most people have not even heard of the Gothic line. Yeah. You, know, you would say that and be like, what? Yeah, and and so, yeah, the underside of World War II, you know, away from the USO, you know, and uh, where a lot of people, you know, never came home. The um, what about what about what about all these experiences you had? Now, how many how many interviews and how many names are on the rifle now? There's two hundred names on the rifle. Can you fit any more? Like, yes, I can, and I still have a list of people to go see now that the book is out. Everyone's hitting me up with family members and everything else, and I'm going to try to get them as all as I can, much as I can. So I'm going to do this until it's physically impossible to find a World War II veteran. So are you going to have to get another rifle? No, I can't. I can't do that to my family. <laughs> <laughs> it's all going on one rifle? Oh, yeah. Yep. It's been, it's been uh, too long of a journey of chasing ghosts and... My wife's been amazing, uh, and I have, you know, I've, I've had a son born during all of this. I have another kid on the way. You know, my day job has taken a beating, so I got to, uh, I really got to um, focus on my family now. And, you know, the next book I'll do will be about Iraq, Afghanistan veterans, but I can't chase ghosts anymore, you know? I don't know. I, I you... Every corner, I had to go to every corner of the country to find specific survivors from specific divisions you know uh i wasn't fortunate enough to do this in the 80s like a lot of historians and authors did what about um did you find guys who were with your um he would be your great uncle yes i did did you yep. tell us the rest of that story um what was that so like for I, you here all of a sudden great. Yeah, this guy comes alive for you. Yeah, I mean, before my grandfather got dementia himself, he will never forget, and I think it was roughly 1947 or 46, the doorbell rang of the house in Renthro. And it was some drunk soldier in uniform. And my grandmother, my great-grandmother took him in, and they sat him on the couch, and he was hammered drunk, said he was with my Uncle Andy. He went to – they passed out on the sofa, and they said, all right, maybe we'll get some answers in the morning. Let's let him sleep. And when, when the family woke up, he was gone. And I would have done anything to know that guy's name or who he was or so on and so forth. So what I had to go from was my grandfather uh, – excuse me, my great uncle served with B Company – 135th Regiment of the 34th Division. This was a company that took heavy, heavy casualties. So, for example, look at Band of Brothers, the miniseries. Right? Oh. It follows Easy Company of the 101st Airborne 506 Parachute Infantry. This is a, a company that stayed together roughly throughout the whole war that you could actually do a miniseries on. Now, you take B Company of the 135th Regiment who went to Italy, that company changed hands and changed faces like 50 times. That's how bad the fighting and, and, and injuries and casualties were in Italy. And not to mention they had over 510 days of combat. They started in North Africa and they went all the way up to Italy. You know, the 101st Airborne didn't get into the war until June 6, 1944. So they have roughly 200 days of combat or something like that. So you have the, the the Red Bull Division, this 34th Division, unknown unit, 
way more days and impossible to to do any kind of mini series on because you know picture that that deployment photo you take before you leave to go overseas right you like everyone's mobbing up you're at camp pendleton you you take this big company photo well that photo would have changed faces 10 different times throughout the war for this particular company b company so basically the the b company men who took anzio were different than the b company men who took monte casino the b company that took monte casino would be totally different that penetrated the gothic line because that's how many replacements were cycling through this unit so i had to find guys who were in b company in september time frame from uh may to september time frame of 1944 to order to find survivors so this is how hard how hard it was because i was finding men who served with b company but they were either before or after the Gothic Line, a.k.a. the North Apennines campaign. So I find this gentleman. I find a news article from the Media Pennsylvania newspaper, local newspaper in Media Pennsylvania, about a gentleman who was the Grand Marshal of the Veterans Day Parade. And his name is Ed Hess, and he served with B Company, 135th Regiment, 34th division so i go bananas i look his phone number up on pennsylvania i call him i tell him who i am and i tell him i want to come to the pennsylvania to meet him and he agrees to meet with me at a local vfw in media pennsylvania and it's the first time i had a beer with a 99 year old man <laughs> and he was drinking rolling rock which was like. <laughs> so that's awesome Right. We go, into, we, go, we have a beer, and then we go into a side room. And this guy could have fed me any bullshit he wanted to, and I would have ate it up, Mike. And right. instead he didn't. You know what he admitted to me? What? That that day on the hill with Andy, guys were retreating. There was mutiny, and even himself wanted to come down off of the hill because the fight was so bad, and he did. And when he went back up two days later with, with other reinforcements and Graves registration officers – there was 30 soldiers dead, including my uncle. He admitted to me, he cried, he cried at age 99 that he told his platoon sergeant, I've been carrying the BAR since Monte Casino. What am I supposed to die up here? I, I want to go back to, I want to go to the rear. I want to be in the rear. I, I'm sure there's jobs I can do in the rear. I, I want off this hill. And he came off the hill. Some people would call him a coward, you know, and he's lived with that his whole life. He's crying to me in the VFW in Media, Pennsylvania, that he came off that hill. And then when some other lieutenant found him at the bottom of the hill two days later, said, what the hell are you doing down here? Get your ass back up there. You want to come off the hill? Fine. Go take the Graves registrations officers up the hill and show them where the company is. And he said that when he got up there, there was a little fat, flat piece of land. They were, they were all lined up, 30 KIA. And so he had to carry basically my uncle down the hill dead wow you know um you know it's interesting you know i um the speaking i do um i i have i have this po program called post-traumatic winning and one of the things and it's just the things i've learned um interviewing guys like you you know and uh guys like uh, the gentleman you were just talking about and um you know, one of the there's three goals and ten commandments. The first commandment is, right, you're never going to get over it. Mm. And you, you know, this guy's 99 years old, probably hasn't driven in 20 years, right? Might not even remember what his car keys look like. But when you talk about those days, he can tell you in slow motion, high definition, right, right. the circumstances of that. And I think that tells us all something about how trauma gets blasted into our brain tissue that it's only coming out you know when you know when we die and and you live with these things forever and there's you know there's and it gets difficult when you're either ashamed or you feel guilt for that that which happens can you imagine because that's that shame and guilt that nobody can lift from you because right. you believe it, you experienced it. No matter, so everybody else can say, "Oh well, you know, you you should have come down." But when you have to live through that and you have those feelings, that is a that is a terrible, difficult, difficult burden. And you you know you're you're right, Andy. I mean, he could have told you anything. He could have lied. 
oh, you know, it was, you know, it was a, it was really a tough day that day, and you know, blah 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 blah, blah blah yeah. blah. Wow, wow, what an amazing story! Now, is he the only guy that you met that was part of was with the company? Uh, when yeah, your you your know, great uncle goes, was killed, so uh, you know I'm scavenging the country for any men from right. this unit, and he says, "You know who else passed me on the way down to the hill was John Heimer. He lives an hour from here." I go, "Are you shitting me?" <laughs> I go, "I'm looking for you guys all over, and you guys are living an hour from each other." And so the next morning, I went to Bridgeport, New Jersey, like the southernmost part of New Jersey, and it was only it was only an hour from Media, Pennsylvania, and I met a gentleman, John Heimer. And um, he, you know, he remembered my uncle's name, didn't remember him in particular. You know, my uncle was one of those 19-year-old replacements who come, get killed, and that's the end of it. It happened so much during the war. Right. And um, he just remembers that day. He said there was a mortar barrage like no other. He said, we, two of us went up to clip some barbed wire. He said, we looked up, and there was two German officers staring at us. He's like, I froze with the clippers in my hand. And then they just walked away, and there was a mortar barrage like no other. And from what I know, Andy's last letter on September 12th was he said, Hey, Mom, I traded off the M1 Grand. I'm carrying a carbine. I'm the radio operator now. So Andy took shrapnel through his lower back and out his stomach. So the the mortar barrage, if it had happened, right, he was standing with the radio trying to give the location of the Germans while everyone else was on the ground because you wouldn't have shrapnel through your low back and out your stomach in that angle if you were if you were covering your own ass, hitting the dirt while the mortars landed, you know? Right, right. So he remained standing. He didn't retreat. He didn't go back. He This 19-year-old kid stayed on that hill when others came off of it. And, um, you know, ton of respect to him. No, yeah, and the other interesting thing, um, as you said, it's the other side of World War II. It's not the parades. It's it's a tremendous amount of casualties, and it's leaders that may not be up to the task because they're thrust into situations that they're not really prepared for, and mm. and and so you know it's it's kind of the rest of the story, the part of the story that we really don't like to tell that much. We'd rather tell other pieces of it, you know. We'd rather tell the band of brothers story, you know. Right. It's, it's a better, yeah, it, it's, it's it's a better story, you know. And 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 you said, you know, I mean, if if um, you know, if you read, you know, Eugene Sledge's book with the old breed, you know, and uh, and I was curious when I found out that they were going to base the series The Pacific on in part on his book. Um, if they would, in fact, put some of the disgusting, grotesque stuff uh, into the series, and they did, right? Mm. You know, yeah. where you know they 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 would call it field stripping the Japs, and that is knocking out their gold teeth with their K bars and putting it in a little pouch. As long as I'm going to be out here, I'm going to get a, I'm going I'm to get a little something for me uh, for my mm. effort, and it's going to be in the form of those gold teeth that will melt that down and and take it down to the jewelry store and sell it. And right. uh, and and just the level of barbarity, and these are all young, you know, you know, guys like you and me, Catholic educated, you know, guys who get put in that situation, and um, and it's amazing. In fact, I think Sledge is a really interesting guy to listen to, and and I have a I have two different interviews that I found that Studs Turkle, who wrote a bestseller called The Good War about World War II, he interviews Sledge. And and it's like this, like it's gold. I I don't. I found it probably not too different than the way you found, you know, the guy in 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 your great uncle's company, which is you're just doing kind of digital research, right? This company, you know, you have these words that you're searching on, and all of a sudden something pops up. Well, that's how I find these interviews, and and they're not even in the format that you could, you know put out i had to take them and play them and and convert them and things like that and so they were just buried but they're an hour and a half of gene sledge talking about his experience in world war ii right and and they're just you sit there and you get to listen and you're mesmerized by he becomes a phd in biology he goes down and teaches and and you know he and he writes his book and whatnot 
But he talks about the the level of violence that they lived with, you know. And 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 after Okinawa, I think they were either still on Okinawa or they were on Guam, getting ready, you know, to invade Japan. Mm. Right. I mean, if you can imagine that as a as a nineteen, twenty, twenty one year old guy, and you've already seen, and it reminds me of Mike Strank's words to his father when he went home before. He went back to Hawaii and got ready to train for Iwo Jima. And he looked at his father and he says, I'm not going to make it through the next time. Right. And and his dad says, Mike, don't say that. And he said, hey, dad, I'm just telling you. Look, I've, 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 I got through Guadalcanal and, and it might have been Saipan. I'm not sure. And he said, you only get so many chances. You only have so much luck. Any of us do. He said, and yeah. I've, I've used all mine up. I know that. If you can imagine that. You know, those kind of young people. And then, you know, you hear about what a great guy Mike Strank was from all those guys who served with him on Iwo Jima. Give me a couple of of the most unforgettable experiences you've had so far. Obviously, the ones uh, with your great uncle are are amazing. But I'm sure you've had some really um, stunning experiences. Real world history, to me, is some of the most exciting stuff you can ever do with these everyday people that that are in our midst give me a couple of things that have happened to you that that have kind of blown you away as you've collected these things you know i i think a lot of it was meeting these men and finding out they never returned to france to belgium to italy like these first world countries we all go to vacation to right in europe how could Italy be so bad that you don't want to go back and sip wine and eat pasta in Rome? Okay. And here I am, this 33-year-old kid coming in with them with a rifle. Well, I was like tw- I was 28 when I started this. But coming into their house with a rifle and saying, hey, did you ever go back where you fought? No. Would you go back now? Yeah, I guess I would. So now you want to go back with me. Like, why me? Why the honor do I have? That you're willing to go back to where the worst experience of your life was, whether your platoon sergeant got killed, where you were captured as a POW, where you got wounded, where you froze half to death in the Battle of the Bulge. Why are you agreeing to go back with me? Why? How did I do this? And I, I took 17 of them back. Uh, well, altogether, I took 20 back. I took two to Italy. I took one to Normandy, and I took 16. What? To, um, yeah, to Belgium. 16 veterans. And I walked the very grounds they told me about in the book, and they I pointed out where they fought and where they served. Um, and that blew wow. me away. And, you know, COVID royally screwed that up, or else I would have did like 20 more trips. I was hooked. <laughs> oh, my God. That's What was that like to walk on the ground with them? Um, a mix a mix um you know it was a blown away for me but i brought their kids with me too i let them all bring one one family member for free i raised about seventy five thousand to do this um and you know some of the kids would come up to me like hey i just want to let you know that my dad was a nasty person growing up um he beat me he drank he there was one time he came home so angry and drunk he threw the sofa out the front window of the house He's, you know, the guy has since been sober for the last like 30, 40 years. But he said, now I can see what was wrong with my father. You know, um, his father broke down, broke down crying, looking at the 17th Airborne Division Monument in Belgium. Um, and to the point where we had to hold him up, you know, and his son. Now his son's in his 60s, right? right. Seeing this for the first time. So it was, it was, you know, and of course I had the other veterans who were happy and luck, you know, go lucky and whatever. But I think for some people, it really just educated a lot that they didn't know. Wow. You know, I mean, what a gift to, you know, to be able to give that family because I mean, I mean, again, uh, all that trauma to see your father throw the couch out of the, you know, the front room, yeah. which is something that, that dad was vicious drunk. He said, right. But I mean, I can totally understand that because when that's, and I don't know about how your experience have changed you, Andy. Um, but 
I don't know why anger seems to be anger and anxiety, kind of the twin towers on, on the, on the heels of going through traumatic events in your life. Um, but I can totally picture that being so flip, you know, so flipped out and pissed. Right. And all of a sudden the couch winds up in front of you. Mm -hmm. Of course it's going out the window. What else would I do with it? I dude, I'm breaking shit all the time. Right. (laughs) No, I mean, you can totally understand it. Right. I was in war too. I mean, I think the other day it was like I was about – I've been working on that, you know, like please. The remotes are the first thing to die in my house if, I, <laughs> if they're near me. You know what I mean? The TV remotes are going right off the wall. But, um, you know, the other day I think I was by myself. I think like a rake, a rake hit me in the head and I was about – and I was about to break it in half, you know. And, um, you know, of course – and I was sober. So imagine being – a drunk guy in the forties or the fifties. Right. Right. Carl, you know, Carl, um, Mar- Carl Marlantis is Navy cross Marine from Vietnam. Who's written a couple of books. One is Matterhorn and the other one is, uh, what it's like to go to war. I think is, is the title. He's been on the program a couple of times and he told me that, uh, he was, uh, he got married a second time. And, and, and so Vietnam veterans, they became closet veterans. They didn't talk about that. They were veterans. Nobody knew. And he mm-hmm. said, um, I had gone to the grocery store and I had I had bought a bunch of groceries and he said I think I'm like a lot of guys that I'm only making one trip so I've got way too many bags in my hand and it's not he said it wasn't you know like recently now there are all these little bags and you can hold on to them right there were the the the, the paper bags uh, the brown paper bags and he said so I have all these groceries in my hand and I grab the the front door and I turn it Right, and I finally get it open because I'm not going to put the groceries down. I mean, come on, who would do that? And then he said, I shoved the door open to step through it, and one of my little girls had put the chain on the front door. And he said, the chain goes, and as as I'm stepping through, I hit it. The grocery go everywhere. He said, and I just snap. I take. He said, I blast the door off its frame. <laughs> Right? Yeah. And my little girls go running out of the room. Mommy! Right? Mm. And he said, and I was sober. And I was sober. And so, no, I mean, this is all too familiar stuff. And it's, you know, it's normal stuff because of that explosive anger that we have inside of us. And, uh, but, but, I mean, so for for a young person to see, I never understood why my dad was the way he was. And now the curtain has been pulled back. I mean, congratulations on that, man. That is, I mean, family's healing, at least beginning the understanding part of it uh, through a difficult life. The um, So are we going to see another book? Um, how- you know, I could do, I really could do a second version of the rifle but you know i i really want to move on to like the life recovery and survival of america's wounded after iraq and afghanistan i just think they're really inspirations that need to be out there with their injuries these ied blasts you know they're when we stopped seeing single amputees and everything became double amputees you know and they have we have the biggest survival rate of amputees of any war right now and i think their stories have should be heard the, um, so that'll be the next book. How, it didn't, you're a writer now. What the hell, right? I, I mean, know. What the hell, man? <laughs> what, how, 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 how does that happen? You're an infantry sergeant in the Marine Corps. Oh, yeah. I and, was a, C, a mediocre C-plus student <laughs> best, and I'm a fucking number one bestseller now. <laughs> the, uh, that is awesome. All right. <laughs> the um, how, do people, how do people find the book? Oh, Amazon, The Rifle. Or Barnes and Noble, the rifle, you can't miss it. Got it. Got it. All right. What have I not been smart enough to ask you um in the past hour? Um, no, you've asked me everything everyone else hasn't asked me yet. So I'm so, I've been so used to doing the same song and dance on all these radio shows. You you hit me with a different angle and I enjoyed speaking. Well, let me tell you, I mean ultimately I think what you're doing is is the same thing that I do. And that is um you know These experiences in life are difficult, and a lot of people have them on the heels of being either abused as children 
or having difficult experiences before they even have these experiences, mm. and and then they struggle in life, and and uh, and I and I think that we all know that the medications and going to, to talk and individual group therapy, if you look at our statistics, it's not what veterans need. It's not what people that go through trauma need. They we need each other. We need to be able to sit and talk about it. Absolutely. And and that's what you're doing. You're opening the door. You know, you stick a warm hand out, and and somebody who comes from the tribe, and says, you, and using that rifle to as a catalyst to do that. And so, no, I mean, I, uh, you know, I love what you're doing. And when I first saw that, because of my experience with my uncle, um, I it made me laugh because I'd seen it myself. I I I wasn't smart enough to figure out to keep doing it like you did, but. Uh, but no, I, I had the same experience, and then just coincidentally, um, you know, went to the punch bowl here, you know, forty-eight hours ago, uh, with the same kind of feelings in my heart. And so, I just want to commend you for the work you're doing, and uh, and just keep doing it because I, I think, as you already know, there's no higher calling in life than to do things that transform people and make their lives better. And I think that's what you're doing, Bud. So, so it's an honor to have you on today. And certainly proud of the work you're doing. And just, uh, first of all, take care of your wife. I mean, she must be an angel to put up with you being a cop. And then this is your side job, your side hustle. Mm-hmm. Holy right. shit. So, uh, so yeah, be nice to her. And uh, and you got my contact information, man. Anytime, uh, anytime you want to come back on and talk about anything, just shoot me an email or a text. And uh, and come on and we'll do it. So what, whether it's a project or raising awareness about something, um, All Marine Radio is uh, the door is always open to you, man. I'm, uh, Thank uh, you. Yeah, no, really proud of of the work you've done, and and God bless you for doing it. Amen, brother. Thank you so much. There you have it, Andy Biggio, United States Marine author. How about that? Mm-hmm. And a graduate of ca- the Catholic school system. And that explains a lot of it. The book is called The Rifle. You can find it on Amazon. All you've got to do is, is put that in there, and you'll find it because I just did it. A bunch of it comes up. Andy, thank you. Thank you, brother. All right. How about that? Told you it was good. Uh, now, congratulations to Andy Biggio for the work that he's done. And, uh, you know, the, the nonprofit work he does, the writing he does, you know, it's just, um, an awesome guy and not a whole lot more you could say than that. And, uh, pleasure and a privilege to have him on all Marine radio. The book is called the rifle. Um, if you type in the rifle and you type his name, Biggio, B-I-G-G-I-O, You'll find, you know, all the different places you can purchase it. If you go to Amazon, type in the rifle, you'll see it come up right away. So, um, no, it's just somebody's doing great things. And look forward to having him back on to about the other things that he's going to do. Um, and so, uh, yeah, very cool. Very cool stuff this morning. So thank you very much for listening. Uh, just a reminder, if I can help you help somebody, um, don't hesitate. Second installment of Post Traumatic Winning. Uh, actually, it's a third uh, seminar group. Yeah, how about that? Um, is the um, yeah the third the third version starts and it's exciting. Not gonna lie to you. So it starts on Tuesday. If you know anybody that will uh, that could benefit from it, uh, don't be afraid to recommend it and uh, put them in touch with me. And if they're nervous about it, which most people are, just say, hey, just talk to Mac. And I will tell you that it'll change your life. And uh, and it's a couple different things. It is certainly the, the plain spoken truth that is, I think, what people find, find reassuring. But it's also listening to other people talk about their lives their struggles knowing that you're just like they are I think there people find great comfort in that and that that together and then watching each other make progress hearing the t- t- 
change in somebody's voice, oftentimes seeing that they look different. Yeah, how crazy is that? That they look different is, is yeah, it's crazy. So, um, yeah, if I can help somebody, then make the introduction. So, I'm Mike McNamara. This is All Marine Radio. On Monday, the 28th of June, in the year of our Lord, 2021. Have a great day. We'll see you tomorrow. I'm out.